Please turn to Philippians in chapter 3. I want to read through verse 16. I think it's marked 14 in your bulletins, but I want to read through verse 16. Before I pray, I almost never say anything about the text before I read it. Uh, Some pastors, and I don't criticize them, I understand why they do it, and it's fine, um, give an introduction even to their sermon and then read the text. I I don't do that because I want the text of Scripture to stand alone in our worship, excuse me, to stand alone in our worship, uh, to honor it, and so that there can be no doubt as to where the message is from. Um, but this particular passage that I'm going to read is a profound one. Now, I hope you understand what I mean when I say that, for it isn't to disparage other passages of Scripture. It's all God-breathed. It's all God's Word. But there are certain passages in the Scripture that seem to carry, in a few number of words, a tremendous amount of truth. And this is one of those passages. There's a few in Philippians. I've already seen a couple, but this certainly is one. I'm going to try, if God will help me, in the next probably three weeks to unpack this. I think I will fail because it is an incredible passage. I I don't know, I don't know that I'll be able to get close to its bottom. Um, So I want us to listen very carefully to it. And I trust that over the course of these weeks, you'll read it and read it and read it and read it. That will be to your blessing. So pray with me. Father, now, as we come uh, to this particular passage, I pray for us that you would grant to us, perhaps even as never before, ears to hear. And Father, that you would enable us to understand the truth that we might glorify you by living a life that is filled with joy. In this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in, may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. A great blessing for me, and I think for any preacher, is to begin in verse 1 here with a word that's often misunderstood by hearers of preachers, and that is the word finally. In every preaching class, students are made aware by the professor never to say finally. We call that a hymn book puller. We don't in our church, but if any pastor ever says finally, you can just hear all the hymn books going ready for the last hymn because they think he's done. But Paul obviously isn't done. He's only in the middle, so it can't mean in conclusion. And so never think that it does. It simply means that having said what I've said, now I'm going to say this. This has all been leading for me now to say this. So finally, I've gotten to the point I really want to make. Now that point may take a long time to develop because we've just been building to it. And so he says, finally. And so where he's been wanting to get, really, is this command, this one phrase, this command, that he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's just not an idea. It's just not a concept. It's a command that we're to rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's telling them. And that's where he's been getting. He wants them to see this. Obviously, in Paul's own life, rejoicing, being joyful, was something that was true. You can, we can track this uh, throughout. For instance, in, in verse uh, 4, he says, Always in every prayer, chapter 1, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer uh, with, with joy. Then in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, even in the context of their lives. Uh, he says to, to them, convinced of this, that is, that he's likely to live and not die, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and, and joy in the faith. So he's very um, um, interested in their joy. And then in chapter 2, and verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and so forth and so on. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. That little word glad is an interesting one. It's literally translated to do joy. <laughs> glad means to do joy. I am glad and rejoice with you all. And so you see that he is uh, after their, after, you see that he is a man who is filled with joy. And his joy, he says, doesn't come from his circumstances, obviously, since he's in prison at that moment in time. But his joy comes in the Lord. He rejoices in the Lord, not in his circumstances, but he rejoices in the Lord because in every one of these circumstances, it's related to Christ. It's related to the gospel because in verse 4 of chapter 1, his joy in his prayer is because of their partnership in the gospel. What brings him joy is in the Lord. And then in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, what he rejoices in is that Christ is being proclaimed even though this proclamation of Christ by certain preachers is damaging Paul's own reputation, still he can be filled with joy, he can rejoice because he knows that Christ is being proclaimed. His joy is in the Lord. His joy for them is that they advance or that they progress 
in the gospel. He wants his joy to be made complete by them so that they could have the mind of, on the basis of them having the mind of Christ. And even though he's being poured out as a, a drink offering, this small in his mind, uh, just complementary to their sacrifice of faith, and you get the impression when one says he's being poured out as a drink offering that that has some unpleasantries to it. It doesn't sound like a, a great, exciting thing to be poured out as a drink offering. But he's giving his very life uh, for them and he can rejoice and be glad in that because it's in the Lord. It's because it's for the sake of Christ. And so Paul rejoices in the Lord and he expects them to rejoice as well. In fact, he begins here by saying rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he says it twice. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. And so he's after them to, like himself, rejoice and to be filled with joy. Now, they seem to be in some danger in this regard. And the danger that they're in, uh, we can notice, for instance, in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. See, there's a problem here. There's a problem with these folks in that it appears as if they're living not in joy and rejoicing in the Lord, but trying to gain attention to themselves. They're rivaling with each other in ministry and they're prideful in the sense no doubt of saying look at what i'm doing and my ministry is way more important than yours so he's having to say to them uh, do nothing out of rivalry and conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves he wouldn't be saying that if he hadn't heard that there's some selfishness going on here he said, let each of you look only, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. It appears that they're grumbling, not just towards God, which all our grumbling ultimately is, I suspect, but towards each other. And they're questioning each other. They're questioning each other's motives. They're questioning each other's sincerity. They're questioning each other's value in the ministry and so forth. And so it doesn't seem like this is a rejoicing community at the moment. Now, we can say that there are mitigating circumstances, that they're suffering in some sense, but so is Paul. Paul himself is in prison. He's writing, no doubt, to Christians who are facing prison. Some may be there, but most not. But yet there are difficulties, but yet Paul can rejoice in the midst of prison. Thus he knows they can rejoice in the midst of suffering, but yet they're not. They seem to be picking at each other. They seem to be grumbling and questioning and, and being prideful and being selfish and looking out for their own interests. And Paul knows that that's no way to be filled with joy. Remember, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, These things I tell you so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be made complete. Now, what was he telling them? He was telling them to love each other. And so we know that when people are grumbling and complaining, when people are picking at each other, when people are being selfish, there isn't any real joy, not joy in the Lord. And so Paul sees the very fact that they're in danger, and so he commands them to rejoice. Now, upon what basis does he command them to rejoice? Well, he commands them to rejoice on the basis of what he has already told them. Not necessarily what he's already told them here in this letter, but what he's already told them probably when he was with them. 
when the church was founded. Because he says, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. That is, for me to remind you of what you already know, what I've already told you, is safe for you. It's safe because no doubt it keeps them safe if they listen to it, but it's also safe because it isn't a new message. This isn't a new message that Paul just happened to come up with. And so he's saying, now I can tell you to rejoice because I, I got the new stuff. He's saying, no, 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 no. I can tell you to rejoice on the basis of what you already know, on the basis of the gospel you already understand. I just need to remind you of it. Uh, Peter writes, for instance, in Second Peter, in chapter 1, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, even Peter is saying, listen, all I'm doing in this letter that I'm writing is reminding you of what you already know. But do you realize we need those reminders, spiritually speaking, because we forget and because there are forces against us to try to get us to forget these foundational, fundamental truths upon which everything else is built. The enemy loves to come into us and simply degrade the foundation. He loves to put thoughts in our minds like God helps those who help themselves. That's just a lie. God helps us because we can't help ourselves. That's the point, isn't it? But yet, but yet it's so easy just to slip to the other because there's a certain measure of truth. You know, when you see a lazy Christian, you just want to kick him in the spiritual, wherever you kick him, and say... Get on with it. And that's a good word sometimes. But that's not the same as saying God helps those who help themselves. That's saying God has worked in you now. Work it out. You see. But it's so easy that the enemy comes in and just sort of degrades. Or when we have a, a great national uh, disaster like 9-11, the enemy comes in and degrades. And he says, you know, when that Muslim prays, you should pray with him. Because after all, we've just experienced this, this great tragedy. So shouldn't we all be coming together? But yet you see, when that occurs, our foundation is degraded. And the distinctives of Christ get blurred. And we forget the very foundation of our faith, which is, we pray through Christ. We pray and are accepted by God and have confidence that we're heard by him. Not because there's been a national disaster, not because we have a particular need, not we're trying to, because we're trying to unify with other people in our country, but because we're accepted through Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness. So we have to be careful all the time. The enemy's coming into the grade. And so the enemy's coming into the grade in Philippi, the foundation. And so Paul says, I'm going to have to remind you of what you already know. I should just have to say, rejoice. And you'd go, oh yeah. But he's going to have to tell them. Peter qualifies this in his own letter. Again, let me go back there. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, that he thinks he's going to die, and as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, every parent knows that we're always, as parents, accused by our children of harping on certain things. And every parent, worth his or her own salt, 
says, that's right. I am harping on these things because there's a certain number of things that I never want you to forget because I'm not going to be with you all the time. And I want you to know these things. I want these things just to come to your mind. And that's true spiritually for us as well. In Ephesians, in chapter 4, uh, Paul writes there about gifts that Christ gives to the church. Chapter 4, verse 11. And it says, And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the, mature, to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. You see, God gives teachers, pastors, to the church to remind all the time. People always hassle me about long reviews. Sorry. It was good enough to say last week. It's good enough to mention this week. We've got to keep these things in the very forefront of our minds. There's only a few things we have to keep in our minds all the time. But if those few things, those truths, get degraded, then it's disastrous to us. Most especially in the context of the attitude of our own souls that we miss out on a life of joy, on a life of rejoicing. Now when I talk about, and when the Bible talks about a life of joy and a life of rejoicing, it doesn't mean a life of walking around giddy or walking around with a silly grin on your face all the time or walking around in sort of this unreal situation, not really uh, understanding or, or, or seeing the reality of the situation. But it means that you walk around with this sense whatever that feels in you, called joy, that's the basis of knowing that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, that God is with you. And that because God is with you, then ultimately, you're secure. Ultimately, good will come. Not, not just some wish, not just some sort of hope, but you know that's the case. Because God is with you. Paul's saying, so rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice knowing that the Lord is with you. That's this sense of security, this sense of peace. This knowing that there's more going on than what you might see with your very eyes. The psalmist writes of that in Psalm 42. The psalm, uh, like many, where the psalmist is in difficulty, so much so, that he uses words like this in Psalm 42, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? This is a person going through great difficulty, so much so that even in his own heart, he's beginning to wonder, is, is God with me? And every time I cry, those tears just simply shout to me, see, if you had a God, you would not be so sad. So where is your God? And then in verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on? Why do I go? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But you see, there's something in this psalmist that he knows 
And so, on two occasions in this psalm, he says, he speaks to his own soul. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Now, if he would have announced that question, asked that question to the people around him, and he would have said, why should my soul be downcast? No doubt. All his friends could say, well, because of this, and because of this, and because of this, and because of this. They would give all kinds of reasons why his soul should be downcast. But yet, God says this to him. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. That is to say, God is with you. You may not see it in the midst of this circumstance, but he is with you. So hope in him, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So joy, rejoice in the Lord, comes to those who know more than they can see. Who know there's something else out there going on than what they can really see. Because God is with them. And so Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, Paul is saying to us, commanding us therefore to rejoice in the Lord on the basis of what he's already told them. He's already given them every bit of information they need. And so now he's going on to tell them again. Notice verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now when Paul says look out for the dogs and you say, well that doesn't sound like a compliment. You're right. He's referring to those Jewish leaders who often followed Paul around from city to city, causing trouble for Paul. Because these were those, he refers to them as dogs, which would be a very derogatory term because a Jew would refer to a Gentile as a dog. And he was calling them evildoers because if people would follow them, they'd be lured to hell. And he's calling them mutilators of the flesh because they were advocating that Gentile converts to Christianity be circumcised. And he refers to that as a mutilation of the flesh as opposed to a sacrament because this side of Christ, that circumcision means nothing. Prior to Christ, it would have been in obedience to the command of God. But after Christ, it means nothing. And so he says, all you're doing is mutilating the flesh. There's no spiritual value to this at all. Because Paul knew that when they were advocating circumcision, what they were doing was advocating that people who had believed in Jesus would then come under the old covenants once again. Because circumcision by that point was a symbolism, symbolized coming under the old covenant. And thus Paul would understand that not only did they misunderstand the truth of Christ, but they also misunderstood the whole Old Testament. Because they were putting their faith in something they would do as opposed to putting their faith in God, putting their faith in Christ. And let's think for a minute about the Old Covenant. Because it's very easy to get confused here. It's a bit of a digression, but it'll, it'll help you, I think. Um, because Paul's going to go on to say, that we are the real circumcision. So we have to kind of understand this a little bit in order to really understand his point. Now, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the covenant that we often refer to as the law, it was really a covenant of grace. There has never been, 
in the Bible, salvation by works, except perhaps in the opening scenes of Genesis, when uh, Adam was commanded in this probationary time to he could eat of all the trees save one. And if he ate of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would die. But presumably if he didn't, then he would live. But when God comes from there on out, it's all utterly gracious. One can even make a case that the relationship with Adam was gracious. But it's all utterly upon his grace, not upon works. So much so that if you would ask an Old Testament person, someone born before the time of Christ, have you been accepted by God? And that person said yes. You would then say, on what basis? If the person said, because I've been circumcised, because I've observed all the feasts, because I've gone to the priest, because I've observed the sacrifices, therefore I am saved, you would say, no, you're not. But if the person would say, yes, I am accepted by God, and you would say, well, upon what basis? And the person says, because like my father Abraham, I trust in God. And then you would follow that up by saying, well, how do you know that God really accepts you on the basis of grace, on the basis of, of your faith in him? And he would say, because I've been circumcised. And you would say, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, because circumcision is a, is a sign of God's promise that if we trust in him, then he will accept us. He will receive us unto himself. And also because of the Passover feast that we celebrate. And how does that tell you that you're saved because of the grace of God as you trust in him? Well, because when I celebrate the Passover, it reminds me of God's act of grace. Where he delivered us out of slavery. Not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. And so every time we celebrate the Passover, it points to us of the grace of God. We don't celebrate Passover so that we can be accepted by God. We celebrate Passover to celebrate God's wonderful grace. It points to that. Well, what about the Feast of Tabernacles? Oh, yes. We celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because it points to us about God's wonderful grace. Because he's the one who kept us and provided for us all throughout our wanderings through the wilderness. And so when we build these little booths and we celebrate this scene of tabernacles, it reminds us of the grace of God. But what about the priestly system and the sacrificial system? Do you participate in that? Oh, yes, I participate in that. Because you see, that speaks to me of the grace of God. And so I go by faith. And I take this sacrifice to the priest, or on the Day of Atonement, he brings the goats himself. And he brings them. And when he slays them, it reminds me that it isn't by my works, because all my works deserve is to be killed. But it's by his grace, because he takes this substitute, not me, but a goat. He takes another, and he kills it on my behalf. And the priest intercedes on my behalf because I'm unholy and God will receive the priest on my behalf. And I come in faith. Everything in the Old Covenant speaks to me of God's grace and my need for his atoning sacrifice. And so if an Old Testament person comes and says, I, I believe that I'm accepted by God because of what I've done in being circumcised and celebrating the feasts and, and making the sacrifice and all of that, no. 
But if the Old Testament person says, oh yes, I believe I'm accepted by God, because in every ritual, in every ceremony, in every sacrifice, I see the grace of God to me, and I trust in Him, then yes. And see, when Paul would hear these people coming and saying, oh, you need to be circumcised, thus you need to do all these things, he would know that they misunderstood the old covenant, and they most certainly misunderstood the truth about Christ. In fact, he would write about them in Romans in chapter 9, in verse 30. He says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in, in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They thought in their doing of the law by being circumcised and circumcising their sons, by participating in the feasts, by making the sacrifices, then they would be saved. But those works with no faith were dead. It is on the basis of faith that we're saved. So Paul goes on. Chapter 10, brothers, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer for, to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And so Paul says, listen, church in Philippi, you're in great danger because there are those here who are adding works to your salvation. And that will destroy you. That will not only mean you're not saved, but it will also take away your joy. You'll have no ability to rejoice. Because Paul says, look, with a real circumcision, those who have been really circumcised as the Old Testament prophets say, of the heart. That is, it's an inward work that the outward sacrament testifies. He says, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, that very Spirit of God who comes and changes our hearts, that very Spirit of God who comes and reveals to us the truth, that very Spirit of God who takes the blinders off our eyes and enables us to see, that very Spirit of God that enables us to worship God from the heart. For we're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, that is, boast in Him, take our confidence in Him, and Him alone and no one else. And then he goes on to say, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul himself knew from which he was speaking. This was not an anti-Semitic kind of statement because Paul himself was a Jew. And Paul himself understood exactly where they were coming from because he was exactly there at one point in time. Because he goes on to say in verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he did it all. And he had confidence in every single piece of what I'm about to read. And he had been taught to have confidence in every single piece of what I'm going to have, about to read. And he knew that his confidence in every single piece of what I'm about to read 
got him absolutely nowhere. No, 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 that isn't true. It got him condemned. He said this, Though I myself have confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. Now when he says that, he's saying, we did it right. My family did it exactly right. We were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. I was. And when I learned of that, I said, I'm in. We did it right. Rather than saying, what does circumcision symbolize? Why did God give us circumcision? Why is that part? Why is that the covenant sign? It's the covenant sign that was given to Abraham and to his sons on the basis of Abraham's faith. Righteousness that came by faith. He should have been thinking, I was circumcised on the eighth day and therefore I realized that God is gracious and I must trust him. And therefore I'm saved because I trust him. But he didn't say that. He said, I believed I was saved because I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, we have the covenant, and thus I was in because I was born into the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, great faithful tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that is to say that my parents were Jews and we spoke Hebrew. Even though I wasn't born, even though I didn't live in Jerusalem, still we we spoke Hebrew and that made us Hebrews of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, which means uh, of all the law keepers, I was with the best group. And if you ask me if I were accepted by God, I would say, of course, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite. I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. My family were, were, were Hebrews all the way through. We were Jews from first to last. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. And if you look on the organizational chart, Pharisees are at the top. And so I certainly, shouldn't I be able to take confidence in that? If I wasn't a Pharisee, maybe I wouldn't. But since I was, I should be able to take confidence in that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, no other Jew of my era was like me. I was more zealous than them all. In fact, I didn't just sit around and complain about this Christian movement. I went after them. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That is, all the things I was told to do, I did. Celebrated all the feasts. Went to all the sacrifices. Went to the priest just at the right times. Every law that was told to me, I obeyed. Externally, at least. I did it all. But then, you remember... A day came when Paul was in the midst of his zealous persecution of the church. He was on his horse on the road to Damascus and he had orders to go there and put a stop to Christianity. And he got knocked off his horse. And the thing that changed in Paul was his whole accounting system. Everything that he had once thought was gain, he now realized was loss. And everything that he had once thought was foolishness, he once real, he now realized was of the greatest value. That, though it happened with Paul suddenly, and happened with many of us gradually, that is what we call Christian conversion. When you realize, that is, you see things finally with real eyes, when you realize the truth, Notice, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, that is, whatever gain he had before, that he thought he had before God, 
whatever gain or profit I had, I counted, that is to say, I now understood as, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing uh, Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You can interject there the most despicable term for trash you wish. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul realized that what he had thought he had, which was righteousness, that is a right standing before God, acceptance from God, being declared by God, yes, you belong to me, that what Paul had thought he had, he didn't have at all. In fact, he had nothing at that moment in time in him to get it. He thought he had everything in him at that moment in time to get it because he had been circumcised just at the right time. He had been born into the right nation. He had been born into a good tribe. He had been, been, been born into a great Hebrew family. He had been promoted all the way up to Pharisee par excellence. And he had obeyed everything that anybody ever told him to do. And so he thought he had everything by what he had done. And at that moment in time, his whole world came crushing in because he realized he had absolutely, positively nothing worse than that. He had a great debt that he could not pay. And so he realized then the only way to have righteousness, the only way to be right before God, is if someone from the outside gave him righteousness. He hadn't, had, he hadn't got it in him. And I think if you'd ask Paul, he would say, if I didn't get it by myself, nobody could. It was rather like Martin Luther at that point, when Luther said, if anyone could be made righteous by his monkery, it is I. But Paul understood, no one can. I gave it the best shot anybody could give it. And yet, I failed miserably because there was nothing in me then that could receive this. And so he's saying, the only way to be made righteous in God's sight, to be justified, to be declared righteous, is on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Because, you see, the law has both penalties and precepts. There are precepts to be obeyed. There are penalties that come when we don't obey them. Our problem is that we've disobeyed the precepts, thus we're under the law's penalty. And in his graciousness, God sent Christ to take the penalty and to obey the precepts. And in taking the penalty on the cross, our sins are forgiven. And in the life of Jesus, as he obeyed the precepts, he is the righteous one. And what he does is give to us, covers us with his righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21. Going to develop this more next week. Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, finally, and in conclusion, I've said all that to say this. 
That's our joy. There's no rejoicing so long as you rely at all upon yourself. There's no rejoicing so long as you count anything in yourself as worthy of God's acceptance. Because, you see, if you count anything in yourself worthy, deep down you'll know it isn't. And your whole life will like be a party before surgery. You know, you're partying, but you're going, oh, I dread what's coming next. There'll be no real joy in life because you know at the very end of it, you have to face God. And upon what basis are you going to face Him? And then even in the midst of it, there are times when you're going to desire to cry out to God for help. And on what basis are you going to cry out to Him? And there are times in the midst of this life that you're going to fail and fail miserably. And then you're going to wonder, what do I do with these failures and these sins and these horrible thoughts and these words that I've said and these things that I've done? And then you're going to have friends and some are going to have children. And you're going to want to give them something that provides for them hope in the midst of their life. But you see, without this righteousness that comes from Christ, what will you really give them? Money? An education? A pattern of life that will simply at the end result in their death. So Paul knows now that apart from this righteousness that comes from Christ, there can be no rejoicing, but because that's there, he knows always he's secure in God. Not because of anything in him, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he knows that he can always be in the presence of God because he's always living in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he knows that he can always go to God, not on the basis of his, his own goodness, but because he lives in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he can appeal to God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. He's justified. And he says, if there's anything that degrades that, if there's anything that, that degrades that foundation, you will never know real, honest joy. You'll have to lie. But he's saying, church, you don't need to lie. Just remember. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that nothing in our hearts and minds degrades this truth the righteousness of Christ. And Father, we live in it and we receive it. And we do so because of your wonderful grace in us that's enabled us to see it and to, to count as loss anything else we might have been trusting in and to trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. So help us in this. Don't let us forget it. Anytime anything starts to burst in to give us confidence in anything, anyone other than Christ, I pray that this truth just bongs us in the head. That we might rejoice in every circumstance and situation. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. If you do, I remind you about our Sunday school classes.
please, if you've been in a class, go. It's the coming to the end of the semester, but this is an important part. And if you don't go, your teachers will be very discouraged. I can say that. I'm one of those teacher people. So please go. The response to the benediction. It's, it's a little hard to get your tongue around, but we'll say it for the next few weeks. Because I, I want to remind you of this. My righteousness is from God. Hallelujah. Okay? Now, if you really believe that your righteousness is not your own, that is, your righteousness is from God, then you can rejoice. That's what the word hallelujah means. All right? Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy, to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, My righteousness is from God. Hallelujah.